Want to listen to this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime and Academia episode ad-free? Head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room to listen to all of our podcast episodes without any ads. You get access to our video episodes, our bonus episodes, and even more exclusive content, including merchandise. It only starts at $5 a month, so head on over to our Patreon. Again, it's patreon.com slash ivorytowerboilerroom. And while you're at it, you know what would be such a help is if you could rate and review the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And make sure that you follow us and share out our podcast to all of your friends. It truly does help. And I want to thank you all. It means so much that you're listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I hope that you enjoy this episode. When you're seeing, say, Boys in the Sand, we'll use that as an example, you go to that 55th Street Theater, you're literally a block away from Studio 54. Like, just picturing this in our minds, maybe it's a little more than a block, but you know, you're one street away from Studio 54, disco's pulsing. Like, that queer community in the disco club was so empowered. And do you feel that this is a loaded question, but have we lost that 70s liberation? Because I do feel that was a time of living. Like, that was a time of empowerment for the queer uh, community, even with prejudice, of course. It's a very good question. We have lost it and we haven't. Hi, this is Andrew, and I'm interrupting what I know is an exciting ITBR episode to talk to you about one of our sponsors, the Gay and Lesbian Review. Discover new things about gay and lesbian literature, history, and culture with a subscription to the Gay and Lesbian Review, a bi-monthly magazine of history, culture, and politics that publishes essays in a wide range of disciplines, as well as a slew of reviews of books, plays, and movies, and a number of special features, such as artist profiles and our popular art memo column. Each issue of the Gay and Lesbian Review brings you consistently intelligent, lively, thought-provoking articles focused on a unifying theme, and it brings together the leading minds on the topic. You won't find a lot about the latest dating fads or fashion trends, but you will definitely find articles about online dating, like using Grindr as a social phenomenon, or even the gay influence on 20th century fashion. Did you know that I've actually interviewed three gay and lesbian review contributors? Make sure you listen to my Ignacio Darnod Breaking the Gay Code in Art episode, where Ignacio explains that key artistic figures like Michelangelo, Donatello, Thomas Eakins, J.C. Leyendecker, and Thomas Finlan all have really explicit homoerotic artwork. And then head on over to the next episode where I talk with Dr. Vernon Rosario about LGBTQ psychiatry and how homosexuality got depathologized. And our most recent episode was with the Gay and Lesbian Review's literary editor, Martha E. Stone, and she talks about what LGBTQ literature you should be reading this summer and also how to become a contributing writer and a reviewer for the Gay and Lesbian Review. 
To subscribe, visit glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W.org. Click subscribe and enter the promo code ITBR to receive a free copy with any print or digital subscription. And as an added bonus, you also receive online access to all of the Gay and Lesbian Review's archived issues. All of them. Okay, enjoy your reading, everyone. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Before I introduce you to such an exciting guest today, I have to give you all, I'm always talking about this is an explicit discussion. This is a little, you know, veering on the edge of homoerotic discussions. Everyone knows that I work on Whitman and queer theory and homoeroticism. And I like to talk about sex in the media. But when I say this is an explicit discussion, you all have been warned that this is our first ever discussion openly about gay pornography. And it's not going to be the last because eventually I want to have a gay porn pornography actor on in the industry because I think that would be a fascinating study. But let me introduce you to my guest who I just have such admiration for. Um, I use him in my dissertation and he wrote a book that I think is so foundational for anyone who's studying male homoeroticism. So I should have asked him first how to pronounce his last name, but I think I can get it. So Dr. Thomas Wo, or is Whoa. it Wu? Wo. 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 Okay. Oh, just like the uh, British writer. That's it. Okay. Dr. Thomas Wall, uh, who is a Canadian critic, is what his bio says. He is best known for his work on documentary film and eroticism. He really specializes on gay pornography, on eroticism in arts and culture. Um, I know that he's written, we're going to talk, get into his canon of writing, but it spans all the way from 1977 up until the present day. And he actually went to Columbia University for his PhD. I need to talk to him about that experience with the work that he does. Um, and he is the Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Film Studies and Interdisciplinary Studies in Sexuality. So yeah, without further ado, here is Thomas Waugh. <laughs> How are you, Thomas? I'm great. Hello, everyone. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Well, so I was talking to Thomas first. I think it's helpful for the audience and for me to learn as one of your devoted now fans. And, you know, I'll get into, he's already seen how he makes an appearance in my dissertation. But before we get into Hard to Imagine, which is the book that I have been teasing the audience with, which I think is just so foundational for anyone who looks into erotic art. And if you're going to look at male-male same-sex representation, in film and photography, your book is at the top. But before that, how did young Thomas, you know, make his way to Columbia? Like, was there, there this mission in your mind of, okay, I know that I need to study eroticism. Like there's something about this culture that just fascinates me. Like, how did that enter your mind? The path was a little bit circuitous 
in the late 60s, I was an English major. And I was very impatient with that discipline. It was pretty stodgy. Uh, and uh, I loved the movies. And I didn't really know what to do. So after I finished my BA, we have something called CUSO in Canada, which is our version of the Peace Corps. And I said, I've got to get out of here. So I spent two years in India with CUSO teaching English in India, which they don't need because they have like 500 million English teachers who are un unemployed already in India, but whatever. So I was there for two years, sort of looking for myself. And during that time, I came out to myself fully as a gay man. I already knew it, but I decided to do something about it. And I also made a decision to drop English literature and move into film, film studies. So from over there, I applied to several places for graduate work, including Columbia. Columbia was the only place that offered me money. So I grabbed it and I ended up in Columbia in 1972 for my Master of Fine Arts and then eventually my PhD. So I was four years in New York City. And if anyone wants to come out, New York City in 1972 is a pretty good choice. Wow. So 1972, you're there in New York City. And this is your first time ever in the States is when you went to Columbia? No. Um, I mean, Canadians very often have hol take holidays, vacation in the States, or I think we'd gone to the beach in Maine once or twice, but... You know, this was the first serious immersion in American culture, and Manhattan's a good place to do that. Yeah. So, you know, do you miss that Manhattan culture now? Like, because I think you don't live in Manhattan. No, um, I do a little bit. Um, it was very exciting. I established in four years, you establish friendship circles and intellectual communities and political communities and when i got my tenure track job in canada in 1976 in montreal i had to leave all that behind so that was like a big displacement but of course i kept trying to keep in touch with everyone and uh, i have very very fond memories about those four years in manhattan yeah well so let's get right into it um which is you know, the work that you in nine, so 1972, you know, you're in Manhattan. What year did you get your PhD? Was it 1972? No, um, I finished uh, my coursework in 76, wrote my comprehensives, and I had to finish my dis. But in those days, I was able to get a job without having a, a final PhD. So I mm -hmm. came up here. Uh, thought I'd be able to finish my discs in a year or two, but it took me five. And it wasn't a queer topic at all. It was a sort of a new lefty documentary topic. Mm. And uh, I was sort of postponing the vision of doing something queer professionally. 
in, in film studies. And uh, as you mentioned, it really wasn't only until, uh, well, a little bit later that I started publishing on queer cinema. Uh, and that was really an important shift. Yeah, well, a nice quick search on your Wikipedia shows, <laughs> you know, you have to question Wikipedia, but I feel like Wikipedia now is a pretty, you know, reliable source of publications. But so when I see that you published Who Are We? A Very Natural Thing, The Naked Civil Servant Films by Gays for Gays in 1977, was that your dissertation? No, no. Ah. What happened there was Jump Cut was a very important tabloid newsprintish new left film publication in the States. It was wonderful and I loved it. However, after I started reading it around 1974, they published a, a critique of a film, a Clint Eastwood film. And the big heading, the title of the film was tight ass and cocksucker or something really homophobic and i wrote them a letter saying what are you doing this is insane uh it's a stupid homophobic film but your review doesn't have to be homophobic um and they apologized and rec recruited me to write for them and they were very smart because here i was fresh talent uh waiting to write and there I did it. So it was called Films by Gays for Gays. Mm. And I submitted it to them and they helped me the, in the editing process. It was wonderful. Um, but it wasn't specifically about eroticism. I think I was being a little bit coy. It was about maybe what you might call gay social social realism. One of those films was a documentary that you, we know by the title... Um, word is out now which is like an epic the first gay lib lesbian and gay lib document uh epic documentary from um i think it came out that year 78 can't remember exactly and so that film plus two uh fiction features one british the naked civil servant and one american a very natural thing so i did make comments on sexuality and eroticism but it wasn't the focus of the article so I was being a little bit coy uh sort of integrating those three films into the discipline of film studies uh in a legit film studies journal uh so that was my first big queer publication meanwhile I had been publishing uh, gay film reviews in the body politic, which was our sort of our radical political monthly in Toronto, a gay uh, monthly. And uh, yeah, so uh, published some critiques. And around that time, I had published uh, a review of a very erotic film by Derek Jarman called Sebastian. And it rubbed me the wrong way for some reason. Now I love it. But I was very negative about it. And maybe it was a kind of symptomatic thing about being uh, provoked by its blatant eroticism. I don't know. 
Well, and to paint the picture for us in the 70s, this is the height of what we now call vintage gay pornography. But you were living in the height of the golden age of gay pornography. Like, this is where all of those experimental films come from. That's where there was really an audience thirst. Playgirl emerges in this period. We have, um, there's a movie that I really like called Pink Narcissus. Um, I think it's by James Bidgivel or something. Bid Thank you. Bidgood. Um, so yeah, I saw that. It's wonderful. I also went down to Midtown Manhattan to the porn theaters, like mm. the 55th Street Playhouse. And I recall seeing a couple things there. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Andrew Rimby, and I am so excited to be talking about Broadview Press. You might be asking, what is Broadview Press, Andrew? Broadview is an independent academic publisher in the humanities that produces high-quality, pedagogically useful books for use in university and college classrooms. They publish in the humanities mainly English studies, writing, philosophy, and history, just to name a few genres. And recently, I had on Dr. Jason Holt, who wrote all about the philosophy of sport. And what better summer episode than to talk about what happens when a philosopher dissects the beautiful aesthetics of sporting culture? In the spring, I had on doctors Kyle Stedman and Tanya Rodriguez to talk about what is sound writing, how to make audio projects in the college classroom, how to even have your students create podcasts. And then in the winter, I had on Dr. Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. He talked about analyzing pop culture. Yes, I even sneak in some Real Housewives questions. And how to teach composition and make it fun. He uses this whole metaphor about being a mad scientist in this gothic lab. And in the fall, I had on Dr. Ann Stevens, and she talked about literary theory and criticism. And yes, the university season is upon us. So what better way to talk about the college classroom than to actually understand what is literary theory? That's a wonderful episode for all of you out there who teach literary studies. I love Broadview Press. Make sure you use their exclusive code. It's Ivory Tower on broadviewpress.com. You get 20% off all, all Broadview Press publications. Okay, until the next Broadview Press interview. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. In fact, it really wasn't my scene uh, going down to those places. For one thing, they were really expensive. And for another thing, I really wasn't into public sex at the time. I was a film scholar. I wanted to see the fucking movies, you know, stop pawing me, leave me alone, let me watch the movie kind of thing. It was like very weird. So, so yeah, so uh, I was tuned into this and I love those movies, but uh, I really wasn't part of the gay porn scene. So wait, this was where most of the cinemas, like the porn cinemas, even right for straight pornography too, they existed around the country. Um, were they mostly in Midtown or like the Times Square area? Where were they yes. in the city? 
There was oh, one okay. uh, uh, in the East Village or close to the East Village, I think called the Jewel. Mm. And the 55th Street Playhouse was uh, obviously on 55th Street. And there were a couple more midtown. Uh, and the straight ones were all over, but especially on, on Times Square. And did I go to any of the straight ones? I must have, maybe once or twice. Yeah. Were they intermixed, like straight and gay pornography, or was Not it specifically really. you no. knew? No. Oh, okay. The okay. mixing that was going on tended to be straight porno and exploitation films, like trashy westerns and things. So in one of the Times Square porno cinemas, I saw Deep Throat. Yeah. And it was funny. The, was it on a double bill with some exploitation film? I can't remember. But that was a real outing for me. I had heterosexual roommates from Columbia. We all went down to Times Square to see Deep Throat. And I wasn't out to them. So That's the that Linda Lovelace a, film for everyone out there. That's it. Yeah. It's like a historic breakthrough in mm -hmm. the canonical straight porn film from 1972. And it came out just about the same time as the really inaugural gay porn film um, uh, uh, shot on Fire Island, which is. Oh, my God, it'll come to me in a minute. Yeah, it's fine. But it's not the it's not the um, Roman Gladiator one, is it? No, 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 no. I still okay. see that though. Um, well, there are several Roman Gladiators. Yes, films. yes. There's a lot of Roman Gladiators. <laughs> um, that's a that's a popular topic in the '70s with porn. Is... Well, it's a real. You can understand why it's sort of a turn on. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the warrior motif, which. Okay, well, you just said the one that is really well known is shot on Fire Island. So, like already, Fire Island was being used, the Pines, Cherry Grove, as right. I've gone. Everyone here on the show has heard me talk about going to the Belvedere for my birthday. I have been back again this summer, and it is such a liberating place of like clothing optional. Um, you know, a clothing optional hotel for queer men. But it's so interesting, like, Thomas, that it's already, Fire Island already has that film and erotic connection of the gay porn industry. Absolutely. Which... Uh, that film was called Boys in the Sand. Ah, okay. And in okay. fact, the whole four years I was in Manhattan, plugged into the gay community there. I never went to Fire Island. I just, I was this starving student on loans and I just couldn't afford it. And my gang was a little bit looking down their nose at Fire Island a little bit. They were a little bit PC. Mm. Well, I still, there's still discrepancies in the gay community that I'm, like I am connected to different types of gay communities and it really like i always say fire island to me i feel so open and empowered but i still have some friends who are really nervous about tropes and stereotypes and thinking that it's always sex and orgies all the time and i'm like no like i lay out on the beach and read but like basically choose your own adventure 
as any LGBTQ resort, really. Absolutely. And Boys in the Sand was so iconic. I mean, now anywhere in the world, when I sit on a beach and watch the water out there, I'm expecting Casey Donovan or someone, some porn star to slowly come to the surface of the water and walk towards me on the beach. And it has happened once or twice. Not Casey Donovan, but real hotties who are out yeah, where there Where was this? Puerto Vallarta? Where were you, Thomas? Well, no. One of this, these uh, incidents happened on a beach in the Baltic Sea. So oh, wow. it can happen anywhere. Yes, anywhere, anytime. Um, but, okay, so I think it's just to think about when you're seeing, say, Boys in the Sand, we'll use that as an example. You go to that 55th Street Theater, you're literally a block away from Studio 54. Like, just picturing this in our minds, maybe it's a little more than a block, but, you know, you're one street away from Studio 54. Disco's pulsing. Like, that queer community in the disco club was so empowered. And do you feel that this is a loaded question, but have we lost that 70s liberation? Because I do feel that was a time of living. Like, that was a time of empowerment for the queer uh, community, even with prejudice, of course. It's a very good question. We have lost it and we haven't. I mean, I think it's very heavily mythologized, the 70s. Mm -hmm. Um and it wasn't the utopian paradise that some people constructed as. I mean, as I said, I was a, a cash-strapped student on loans, and I had to write my term papers and get up the next morning. I couldn't party all night. Mm -hmm. uh, and there were lots of us in that kind of a situation who couldn't be professional homos. Uh, we had jobs to do and studies to do, and... Uh, uh, loans to pay off uh, and jobs to keep. So, um, yeah, it, I think it was a really mixed and complex situation. I mean, I loved walking through the village and ending up on Hudson Street on, on the uh, in the, the West Village. Um, uh, but you know. Uh, I wasn't a, a bar bunny, really. Uh, I did occasionally go to bars. But as I gradually established my family, we spent more time with each other rather than going out to bars. It was really nice. We had, we even then were talking about alternatives to the bars. Mm. Yeah, well, and like I'm thinking of, you had the peers in the village, um, of laying out again, there's a lot of what I'm so fascinated in, like, well, turned out to hard to imagine, but I'm sure reflections of your 70s will come back. And I'm so glad you brought up there is this mythologization that does happen. I mean, it even has happened with, you know, just as you get older. Um, I mean, I'm 30, but so you have life experience on me. Um, not going to ask you to reveal your age to us, Thomas, but I'm celebrating know. my 75th birthday this weekend. Oh, congratulations. Okay. Well, happy birthday. And let me tell you about one thing I was into in the, the seventies. 
um, there there were a couple of gay vintage shops that mm. sold old erotic magazines and photos from the 50s and 60s. And I was actually already, instead of the current stuff that was coming out, I was really into the retrograde archival stuff, like the old physique magazines and the mm. glossy black and white beefcake photos from photographers who had then been forgotten, like Proust of Los Angeles and uh, Bob Miser. And so that was really what I was interested in, or one of the things I was interested in. And this led directly to Hard to Imagine. Okay. And, but it's just fascinating that these shops existed. Like, I guess when I say, have we lost things? I feel what we've gained is in media, in digital yeah. media and in social media. I mean, I'm so connected to even um, gay porn scholars on social media, or like when I was saying, this isn't going to be the only episode we'll do about um, gay pornography. It's because I, I've reached out to Mark McNamara, who is the director for is a one of a director uh, for Naked Sword porn company, and I like know the Playgirl social media presence, and Bob Miser has a social media on Instagram where you can see his photos. Um, I have a friend who does um, a project called Queer Modernisms. I have a friend who does Breaking the Gay Code in Art, who like, they all have used you as a touchstone. And so it does live on. And I guess the nostalgia is for the space, right? For the physical space is that nostalgia of, okay, well, there are no cinemas now to go to. There is no, you know, vintage store to get the physique magazines. Um, but at the same time, I don't want, you know, to paint this Pollyanna picture of Thomas that you were like able to be fully out and about in your Columbia University presence. I mean, that's a question I have for you. Do you feel that you were able to be that same Thomas who went no, to the vintage no, store? No, I wasn't. Yeah. Uh, maybe I just didn't have the guts, but I, I really wasn't. I had four roommates from my year at Columbia and I wasn't out to them at all. I mean, I would go to the gay dances on the Columbia campus that were like once a month. And I met a wonderful boyfriend in the elevator in my building at Columbia, but I really wasn't out. And I was dying to find a plug-in in the discipline of film studies that was queer. I had read Parker Tyler's Screening the Sexes, which was the a real pioneering book about uh, queer film history that came out in 1972. It was extremely mm. important to me. And, but the, the big breakthrough in terms of queer film studies didn't really happen until I'd left New York. In 1977, there came out the book Gaze and Film by Richard Dyer. Mm. That was the big breakthrough. That was like a thunderbolt. It was amazing. And I immediately sent Richard a fan note and he happened to be coming to New York. So I went down to New York and met him and we become we became lifelong friends. That was the big year. I mean, it came out as the uh, as an accompaniment to the first London gay film festival. 
so that was really when it, it gay film culture started to really pick up and one of the points that richard made in, in gays and film in the book was uh we're not leaving pornography out of there out of this uh he was critiquing the people who were making political negative political judgments about pornography uh, and he made a very explicit point about maintaining pornography within our our um, scope. That was very influential to me. Well, so he collaborated with me in that jump cut piece. He did a piece at the same time in that same issue of jump cut on gay stereotypes in film noir in the old black and white uh detective movies from the 40s from hollywood so things suddenly started happening yeah and i've been so lucky i had vernon rosario on this podcast who like talked to me about um what it was like to be at one of the first queer theory conferences where john boswell was there and like where you know martin duberman had a presence um, so that was around 89 or 90? Yes. Yeah, like right, yeah, a little before, um, maybe right before 90. And what I find, like we have to get I was, to- I was there. No. Oh, you were there. Okay. So I think that, like, so you would, it seems like though what you're painting here for us is your dissertation though was not going to be a study of homoerotic beefcakes and gay porn actors. Like it no. wasn't at that level of openness. No. Yeah. Okay. So what like, happened how... was I didn't finish my diss until 81. And then I immediately went up for tenure. I got tenure. And then I threw caution to the winds. I thought, okay, I need a new project. I'm going to do porn. Hi, everyone. This is Andrew, and I am interrupting what I know is such an exciting Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode to tell you all about one of my favorite podcasts. It's called That Old Gay Classic Cinema, and it's hosted by Christian Garcia. Christian is joined with guest co-hosts to talk about classic cinema films that we know and love, and he analyzes them through a queer lens. So, He's talked about The Sound of Music, Alfred Hitchcock, The Wizard of Oz, Sleeping Beauty, 101 Dalmatians, and recently, Hello, Dolly. I actually was on his first ever episode to talk about my love of The Sound of Music and playing Captain Von Trapp in my high school musical. Then I was joined with Mary DePippi, the host of True Crime in Academia, and our friend Travis Roundtree to talk about Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mary just had Christian on True Crime and Academia to talk about female poisoners, including the evil queen from Snow White and actual real life female poisoners. So Christian's podcast is the best. You must add it to your listen list. After you listen to this episode, make sure you head over to That Old Gay Classic Cinema on Apple and Spotify. Make sure you follow him on Instagram at That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And he's also on TikTok. Don't forget TikTok. Okay. I can't wait for you all to listen to That Old Gay Classic Cinema. And now back to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room.
LGBT stories are universal, but each one speaks to the individual heart and soul of the writer telling it. Do you have a story to tell? Or have you been moved recently by an LGBT book, film, painting, television show, or other form of media? Then the Gay and Lesbian Review wants to hear from you. The GNLR believes in bringing awareness to queer art and artists through reviews, commentary, and thought pieces in which the author relates their personal lives to a particular piece of art, a novel, a movie, or what have you. In addition to the print magazine, the GNLR also publishes articles on its blog as well as personal essays on its popular Here's My Story section on glreview.org. That's G-L-R-E-V-I-E-W dot org. To learn more about submitting an article for the GNLR, visit their writer's guidelines. The link is located at the bottom of the homepage. And if you have any questions, email publisher Stephen Hemrick. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N dot H-E-M-R-I-C-K at glreview.org. The GNLR and its readers can't wait to see what you have to say. And I went down to the Kinsey Institute the next year and just was bowled over. I couldn't believe what I saw. All of this had been going on underground for generations and we were totally unaware of it. I mean, a lot of my generation, like baby boomer, uh, gay, gay, uh, gay radicals, thought everything started at Stonewall, but it didn't. It had gone on for generations underground. So that was a very important discovery for me. And that led to the publication of um, Hard to Imagine 15 years later. Yeah, well, and how I, you landed your book or you metaphorically in my lap, um, <laughs> which let the audience speculate on that metaphor. Um, is I was noticing my work, like, yes, I'm a queer Whitman scholar, but to be a queer Whitman scholar, I also have claimed this genealogical homoerotic project of scholarship, like of literally tracing this genealogy of how Whitman, from John Addington Simmons as a sexologist in the Victorian period, is the first ever to use Whitman as a case study for homosexuality of claiming Simmons himself as a homosexual turns to Whitman. And then how Whitman literally is this touchstone with all these homoerotic scholars into porn studies. I just find it fascinating because it's why I argue that ancient Greek mythology for Whitman is his star of homoeroticism. Like there's always a passing of the baton or an illusion that needs to be used as a circulating concept for understanding same-sex desire. Um, I think that's a very good point. We're always looking for our ancestors, aren't we? Um, have, I just finished reading that new historical novel on John Addington Simmons. Have you read it? Oh, yes. Actually, um, shout out to Tom Crew. His episode is... Uh, before yours coming out. So oh, everyone, I just interviewed him for the new life. So um, yes, him, we, um, I, I used it. him. Yes, I it used him great. in my dissertation. 
So like I brought together all of these Tim Dean with unlimited intimacy. Like I basically traced the, you know, queer male homoerotic scholars. Like, and yes, I know that there's all there's a lot of scholarship on female homoeroticism because Thomas, I'm going to get the comments of where's the women? Like, yes, I realize. I, there is a lot of work on women and homoeroticism. Linda Williams' porn studies work. I want to shout Linda Williams out, who I think I should, are you in touch with Linda Williams, Thomas? I am. Uh, I don't know whether she's uh, available. She uh, was sick a couple of years ago, and I hope she's back on her feet. I'm not sure. Okay, well, eventually I'll definitely have to have Linda Williams or someone from her camp Come on, because, well, right. So her work, um, is it, what was her like canonical or the book that everyone turns to hard? She was the first book on mainstream commercial hardcore pornography. It was 1989. Yes. Okay. And um, it was very important. And at that time, she was also a jump cut contributor and at that time I was very jealous of her because I had also been working so hard and hard to imagine and I was getting turned down by every publisher and there Linda was who the University of California Press welcomed with open arms because she was dealing with heterosexual pornography and agreed to publish her book without a single picture in it oh. mm. and so you know, there was this very, very uh, Picayune resentment of this wonderful book when it came out in 89, even though I love it and I uh, owe so much to it. Uh, and um, yeah, she was she's a great pioneer. And um, we all were building on her legacy. Hard to imagine references her throughout. So uh, we couldn't have done it without her. It almost gave... Is... Yeah. my publisher a kind of legitimacy and i would say to columbia university press linda williams did it university of california press did it why can't you mm. and they bought it well no thank you for also answering why her book didn't have photos i mean the one that does have photos is screening sex i'm right. pretty sure but that's a later yes. book Much but you're later. referencing porn studies right is that the book that you're no no, even before um, porn studies. What is it called? My God, I'll find it. I'll find it. But well, can you? OK, I'll find it. Can you explain, though, Thomas, for all of us how hard it was to fight to actually. So Linda Williams does not get the photos. She agrees. OK, I won't put the photos in my first book of heterosexual pornography, but please publish it. And they say, OK. That's our agreement with you. But you you fought long and hard, I know, to get gay porn and gay erotic, homoerotic, explicit, right? Let's just say what it is. Penises out there um, on your pages. How did that happen? Like, how did you go through this fight? It was really rough. Um, it literally took me eight years in your email andrew you did a made a typo and you said eight months but it was oh, eight yeah. years <laughs> and wow. it really was hard the publishers just wouldn't buy it we'll never be able to do it they said 
And the worst thing was when they would show it to a, a lawyer and the lawyer would always say, no way, don't touch this, don't touch this. And finally, Columbia agreed to do it because they had a, a lesbian and gay series with two very important LGBT scholars um, leading the series, Larry Gross and Lillian Faderman, and they were respectable and they had published very important studies. So Columbia listened to them and they advocated for me, especially Larry Gross, and kept an open mind and finally said, we'll go with it, but there were so many restrictions and so many lawyers kibitzing. Wow. And moreover, um, I was relying on the Kinsey Institute mm -hmm. for as the source of many of the photos. And that was a total nightmare. So I was surrounded by nightmares on all sides. I've actually published this horror story about this process in my book, The Fruit Machine, if anyone uh, wants to look it up. But yeah, I'm amazed. I, it was very good for character. Yeah, well, and um, I was saying to Thomas, shout out to Stony Brook University. They have the first edition and the first edition has like the quality of the photos are so good. But I am now holding the, you know, second edition of Hard to Imagine, which gay male eroticism, photography and film from the, their beginnings to Stonewall. That's the full title. Um, is like the photos are still present, but they're grainy. It's just the quality is not at the same caliber. And I'm assuming, do you know, was it because of just how hard it was to reproduce these photos? I'll tell you why. I mean, that was one of their last pre-digital books. Mm. It was all analog. And they had trouble finding a publisher, a printer, and apparently lost, at some point, lost all the files. Oh, no. Uh, originally, they were going to have it published in Hong Kong. Uh, and then finally, Hong Kong said, no, we can't touch this. We'll go to jail. So then they found an upstate New York mom and pop printer to do it. And in all this process, they didn't keep the analog files. Everything was analog. So what they did for this new edition you looked, you've just shown was they scanned the original pages of the book. And it's not surprising it's so awful. Yeah. And the thing is, they didn't care. If they'd asked me, I could have produced a lot of them. But they didn't understand that this was the essence of the book, the quality of these images. They didn't get it. Yeah, that's what you're analyzing. I mean, I have a little, uh, you know, marker in here. I'll just read a <laughs> quick quote. But this is the section that I really, um, you know, one that I turn to the most for my work is there's a section in beginnings called looking versus being looked at. And this is where you lay out the foundation of Narcissus, the mythology, and why it's so present in terms of cruising, in terms of just homoerotic spectacle. And so here's just one quote that I love. It says, and this is Thomas's words, 
Um, some motifs like Narcissus or the watch sleeper are borrowed from traditions of heterosexual eroticism, while others such as sports spectatorship or a reader turning onto an image within the frame may well be unique to homoerotic culture. And then on the next, you know, on that next page are just such like intriguing photos. Um, and now it makes sense. They were coming from the Kinsey Institute because I was like trying to trace these photos. And what page and, like, are you like, on? Uh, page 42 and three. Um, you have like images of men looking at themselves in the mirror. One is um, right. kissing himself, actually almost tonguing himself, doing a French tongue yeah. thing. One is that physique bodybuilder looking you know, at himself in the mirror. And then the other is literally in the act of masturbating. And, and then the, and then the final one is actually from a movie. And it was oh, very okay. important for me to include movies. And that's from actually one of the first ever gay uh, artistic films from 1926 by Jean Cocteau. Ah, okay. And so, um, yeah. But how did you actually trace these like all of these um, photos that you were going to analyze, because like you said, they are not, you know, just for decorative appearance. These are literally speaking to your argument about gay eroticism from antiquity to Stonewall. So like, is this something you well, had just found? the guy on the upper right, the photographer who did the one in the upper right of this oiled up hottie in the mirror, I actually met in California, Richard Fontaine. Oh, wow. That was wonderful. Uh, and he shared so much with me. He was an elderly guy living, I don't even remember the name of the town in California. Um, and um, you can tell even from the credits there, I'm relying on maybe a friend or two who were also interested in gay history, who had little collections. And, um, um, the the Hirschfeld photo from the Narcissus one was published by Magnus Hirschfeld in his big encyclopedia of homoerotic art, of erotic art from the 1920s. And of course, that whole legacy was destroyed by the, the Nazis, as we know, in 1933. But uh, we've been able, there are lots of copies of the book in the West. So I was able to take that, I believe, from one of the books, or maybe it was from the Berlin Gay Archives. I don't remember exactly. Mm. So you have to uh, know your way around all the various sources. And I was lucky I had some funding. And, you know, for me to go to California and track down this guy, Richard Fontaine, was a thrill. And he was so excited that someone was interested in his work. Um, and I mean, his work to our eyes now from the 50s looks really tacky, you know, like some of these gladiator movies of bodybuilders prancing around a swimming pool in a little tunic. But they're really hot. They're silly and hot. And he was so proud that I had tracked him down. Yeah, well, and, you know, for the audience out there, I'm going to ask Thomas you know, if it's easy for him to send photos, you know, maybe 
if you have these, you know, at your disposal, you know, if you want to send a few of your favorites to me or even the ones you just described, I'll share them on our social media. So super. Okay. They can be out there. You know, I will do right with the errors <laughs> of the second edition. So whatever Let's you want to send my way, Thomas, I will share out. But um, and the other thing that's happening yeah. is that I'm so frustrated by the quality of the book you have there that I'm going to set up my own uh, website and upload the entire book with quality illustrations to the website. Oh, that but would be that's incredible. going to take a while. So it'll... that's fine. That's incredible, though. Thank you for doing that, Thomas. And I think, though, we definitely have to talk about the perils now. But something I'm facing right now is like even having this discussion, which I is at the core of who I am as a homoerotic scholar and just so invested in how literature and media, how all of these platforms these texts, I'll say, mixed together, is you do, though, put a scarlet letter or a certain lightning rod on you. And I know you've had so much, um, uh, so many years of thinking about yourself in the field of, say, porn studies. And sometimes I wonder, like, I know who does porn studies, but I do wonder, okay, how did that university take a chance on them? Like, there is a you open yourself to a vulnerability. So I guess my question is like, just, you know, Thomas, how did you navigate that? Because I feel it is difficult when you study sex, especially, you know, gay eroticism and queerness, and you go there, like you're not going to try to hide the work you're doing. It's, it's a perilous pathway. It is. Hey, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners and true crime friends. You've heard me gush over this incredible woman and her beautiful products. I'm talking about Mandy Made It. Mandy makes customized and original crochet and cre-cut goods. They are the perfect, unique, one-of-a-kind gift for literally anyone in your life. And she makes incredible home decor. I still have my pumpkins that I put out every fall. I just love them. Check her out on Instagram at M-A-N-D-E-E Made It or search Mandy Made It on Facebook. To order, just slide into her DMs. And if you mention the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, you will receive a free personalized gift with your first order. So... Go on Instagram and look up at Mandy Made It, and Mandy is spelled M-A-N-D-E-E. -E. Again, her handle is at Mandy Made It, Mandy spelled M-A-N-D-E-E, -E, and order today. As a Long Islander, I was so excited when I finally found a med spa that totally matched everything I wanted. I was looking for a good facial place, a good place that had skin products. And guess what? In my hometown now of Port Jeff Village, there is Skin Med Spa. And I'm here with the owner, Lauren, who's going to explain to you all what kinds of services are offered, products that are offered, and you know why you should come to Skin Med Spa if you're in the Long Island or New York City area. 
Well, we wanted to open up a place that was offering all holistic natural treatments that were really providing results driven, um, where someone could come in, maybe struggling with acne and has tried so many different products and they couldn't find what's right for them. So we customize all treatments to really help you dive into your skincare goals, whether it's anti-aging rejuvenation, like I said, acne, just to help with cellular turnover, focus on building healthy skin. Um, we have two locations. We have skin and spa and body right here in Port Jeff Village. And again, we focus on all natural plant-based skincare. We'll help you design a good custom skincare line for you. And we'll help you find the right treatments, whatever your skin needs. Yeah. So Lauren and Sarah, they know that I get a cupping here. I get hydrofacials with Rosie. I get jet peel facials with Lauren. Everything here is so wonderfully curated, like Lauren said. And there's just any kind of product. Oh, I know there's now laser hair removal. I mean, there's always a new product being offered. So everyone out there who's listening, if they want to come to Skin Med Spa in Port Jeff Village, how can they find you and get in touch? We're really active on social media. So at Skin Med Spa PJ on Instagram, that's the best way you could probably find us because we really try to post daily updates of our clients and who's coming in and the treatments that we're doing. Um, and of course, on our website, there's always links down how to book an appointment. But everything we do when you call us, that's always the best way. We answer the phone and we'll talk forever and help you find whatever is perfect for you. Okay, well, hopefully Lauren gets to meet you all. Say that you heard Skin Med Spa's ad on the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, and maybe I'll see you all here. Okay. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you. I mean, I should just say again up front that I'm really indebted to Columbia for really going out on a limb, despite their obnoxious lawyers. And despite their uh, CEO, who insisted that the book not have a picture on the cover, can you believe it? That's why there's no image on the cover. Okay, so uh, uh, hats off to the Columbia. But I was lucky in my situation. As I told you, I got tenure in 81 in a very liberal university and in a liberal faculty, Faculty of Fine Arts where there was a, a, a feeling, a, a community feeling of tolerance and diversity, uh, I was really lucky. And so I sailed through the um, approval processes for my funding, for my promotions, because these were all, you know, downtown artists uh working in the faculty of fine arts who appreciated this kind of spirit if i'd been in a you know a more uh traditional department or a more traditional faculty it wouldn't have been so easy so yes i was taking a risk but i was in a very comfortable environment that that was encouraging me um so at the same time, there were risks. Um, one of the stories I tell in the in the um, the fruit machine saga is how at one point Kinsey threatened to sue me because I was publishing in places like the Body Politic, and they made me sign an agreement only to publish in scientific publications, and for me, a gay lib 
historical and cultural journal is a scientific publication, but they didn't buy that at first. So that was another thing I had to work out. So there was that kind of a risk going on to establish the legitimacy of my work with places like the Kinsey. Um, and um, because I'm working in Canada, we were also concerned about the border and Canada customs, because there was a lot of harassment going on in those years by Canada customs of, of gay bookstores, uh, gay uh, citizens importing books and pictures and films. There were censorship bodies in every province. And so legally speaking, everything was a little bit dicey and you just had to move ahead and hope that if worse came to worse, you could defend yourself. And I guess I was pretty lucky. At one point, I had to testify at the trial of the Vancouver LGBT bookstore, Little Sisters, uh, who had sued the federal government because they couldn't import books anymore. Everything was being stopped at the border and they just were being closed down by this harassment. So the the, the situation up here was, was pretty bad. I mean, in the States, it was uneven. I think every different, every jurisdiction was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but yeah, so so we had to keep an eye behind us. Uh, and, um, you know, who knows uh, well, what was being discussed behind the scenes. And uh, maybe the fact that I was established in non-queer areas as like documentary helped me just navigate all of this. Um, it's probably true, but yeah, um, it's it was very tricky. Well, and at the end of the day, the way like I feel is there's such a passion I have for studying these topics that you get to a point, right, where you're not going to feel dissuaded. You're not going to want to diminish your passion and like attracts like. like I feel that a place that would not want this work being done or being taught to their students, they're not going to hire you then. Or like they'll hire you under false pretenses and then you try to go into your passion and they put the kibosh on it. So then is was it, like, is it, in my opinion, it's better to probably be transparent about the work you do. Oh, absolutely. Even but, though- you know, Until I got tenure, I was a little bit discreet. Just a little bit, not too much. Uh, and uh, at my tenure hearing, I was afraid I was going to be fag baited. Mm. But in fact, I was red baited because this mm. documentary work I was doing rubbed one or two of the dinosaurs in the department uh, somewhat the wrong way. So uh, so that went counter to expectations. The, the, the fag stuff, they just, you know, passed right over you know they were scared about the uh red communist uh yeah. takeover the, the, the communist menace they were in this mccarthyist type era yeah. thinking yeah. interesting okay 
Well, and do you feel that, like, since we have a few more minutes, I have to just ask, do you think that we're in, is porn studies flourishing, in your opinion? Like, has there been the discussions about Pornhub and Xtube? Like, do you think now there's Definitely. so much? Yes, uh, okay. The legitimacy is indicated by the existence of this, this um, scholarly review called Porn Studies that's available online. And a lot of very interesting research is going on on the new social media platforms like Pornhub. It's wonderful. And the fact that it, it's a it's a very mixed constituency, lots of feminist scholars are interested in porn as well as uh, LGBTs. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so yeah, there's a lot of work being produced right now. I think that... Um, there are also a lot of people who are still uncomfortable with porn and with sexuality. In fact, I would characterize the what's going on now as a kind of renewal of the sex wars. Mm. What was going on in the early 80s as a, a conflict between pro-sex feminists and anti-sex feminists, what I would call carceral feminists. All of this, I think, is being renewed now uh, thanks to the sort of the it's been triggered by the Me Too movement. Mm. Uh, and you can see there's been an uh, uh, an escalation of the acrimony, the antagonism between the two factions, the so-called pro-sex contingent and the anti-sex uh, uh, contingent. So we're not, you know, uh, totally... Uh, out of the woods yet this this conflict has been renewed and i think it does show up in the pages of porn studies and the other publications that are 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 uh um bringing out articles and books on uh pornography and there's some very interesting books that have come out after the me too movement by feminist scholars that mm. are really interesting in terms of the work they're doing so i would strongly encourage um uh, listeners to check out all that literature going on. Yeah, and even a lot of celebrities, um, Hollywood celebrities have entered the fray, like even Paris Hilton's memoir right now. And there's Emily Radzikowski, I think is how you say her last name. Like she weighed in on consent culture. So, but how about, I do have to ask then, since you brought up the Me Too move, movement, well, how about, of course, the backlash I think a lot of censorship questions right now are framed under anti-LGBTQ, like the book banning concerns in the States. And like, that's where I think more my headspace is of my friends of mine who do such explicit, again, explicit, I feel triggers a reaction, but who just openly discuss eroticism, I should say, instead of saying explicit, um, that they're concerned because they're in States where these laws like i know thankfully in the north hopefully i will be free of a lot of this these concerns but there's friends of mine who do porn studies work i'm sure you know those who are in the south and this is impacting now their teaching absolutely you know? no we're going through a very scary time this uh your word backlash is a very apt word 
uh, and this contingent is really out there and we need to uh, not lower our guard. There's a real battle going on and we need to stand up for freedom of speech and freedom of desire. Yes, well, and I always say we're supposed to have freedom of speech. So, you know, how I live my life and my, you know, identity in all of its pleasure and passion, you know, does not mean that I'm breaking um, rules in terms of consent. And I think like you're getting us to that. So is that what you're bringing up with the Me Too movement is like, there's a lot of the questions around consent. It is a varied, such a nuanced layered question, but like you as an educator, you it's, know what it means. Very, very complex. Absolutely. Yes. And moreover, I would go down on a limb and say that within the game community, consent has specific and exceptional meanings and uh, valences and histories. Uh, I was at a, 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 a round table on, on um, cruising last week and people were talking about how the culture of gay male cruising has a whole protocol, a very complicated protocol around consent Whereas some in the Me Too movement are demanding consent always be verbal. Just as an example, in this cruising culture, this gay male cruising culture, verbal consent is not uh, prevalent at all. It's gestural mm. and... Uh, it's uh, eye-locking. Eye-lining yes. and, you know, the whole work. So it's very a very interesting discussion and it's not over. Yeah, it's you know, pushing the hand away from someone. I mean, again, I'm not saying, yeah, nonverbal gestures. I'm so glad you brought that up, that when it comes to consent, the conversation, but I would say even like verbal consent itself, you know, in heterosexual context has, there's nonverbal consent as well. And that's starting Absolutely. to be looked at, at, looked at. So it's not a one set rule and, you know, I'm glad you brought that up, Thomas. I think that what excites me is the work that, you know, I wouldn't be doing the work of eroticism in literature without you, Thomas. You know, we've brought up, there's a whole genealogy that you look to from the physique magazines. Like, again, it's all about influence. It's about this community who's existed. Like we're all turning to others to form our narratives. And I'm so grateful that you came on to my podcast and I'm so happy your work is out there. I can't wait to share images from your book with the community. And I think that it's great that you're going to start that website. It's that's again, I think right now we're in the need for this genealogy to be public. Like if anything, I think I know that this community of homoerotic and like gay pornograph pornographic and scholarship exists, but maybe it's just, you have to enter the circle. Like how do you find the circle is the hardest part when you're well, it's at a, a lot easier to do in the um, current era than it was in mine. So 
good luck, everyone. <laughs> well, that's true. And I think, too, at the end of the day, like now with social media, um, like even when you are experiencing obstacles of your work trying to be censored or you can feel that tension within your gut of someone trying to squash your passion of telling this narrative, you know, though, there's so many who are applauding you. So it keeps you going. It's it's an interesting, it's like living in two universes in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Like even us on Zoom is a concept that we would not have talked about in the 70s with Thomas in, uh, you know, to that porn cinema on 55th Street. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. This was wonderful. And, um, you know, how can everyone... I guess, well, the easiest way would be to find you is your faculty profile, right? That's right. Okay. Yeah, people can find me uh, at Concordia University, and um, I'd love to hear from people. Yes, please reach out to Thomas. And yes, thank you. I just owe a lot to you. I it's hope you have- It's been so much fun chatting with you, and uh, good luck with this wonderful podcast, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. And everyone out there, let us know what you're reading and, you know, what you're inspired by in gay pornography. If you have recommendations for me to bring on certain guests, send them my way. I need to reach out. We'll figure out the Linda Williams. That would definitely, you know, be another excellent conversation of genealogy, of porn studies. I mean, Absolutely. at the heart of porn studies. Okay. Thank you, Thomas. I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you so much, Andrew. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. This is Andrew Rimby, the host and director of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor and host of True Crime and Academia. Please, if you're not, make sure that you follow the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok, too. Remember our TikTok? That's where all the exciting video clips are posted. Make sure that you join our Patreon if you want more Ivory Tower Boiler Room and True Crime and Academia content. All the video interviews are on our patreon all of our bonus episodes are on patreon and it just means so much for you to join for five dollars a month you unlock all of our bonus episodes and also it just helps support the ivory tower boiler room thank you so much for giving mary and i a needed jolt of caffeine for coffee thanks for the five dollars head to patreon.com slash ivory tower boiler room we cannot wait for you all to listen to our summer season. There are so many exciting episodes. And we're also celebrating three years of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. So without further ado, thanks for listening. Make sure you listen to the next episode next week. And have a wonderful summer season, everyone. Okay, bye now. <laughs>